one of the key indicators of success and retention in college is actually proximity. So we are still existing in this educational environment where even beyond K through 12, if you don't live close to a college or a four-year credentialed institution, it's exponentially more difficult for you to attain a bachelor's degree. Throw out homework, worksheets, ominous buildings, hall passes, herds of students, grades, all of it. What would you build? If you start with the amazing thing that is a young person, how would you honor all of their strengths and abilities? How would you remember that this is about them? If Dewey was right, an education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself. We need to do more than rebuild schooling. We need to rethink living. Welcome to the Education is Life podcast, where we are having honest discussions on the state of education, where it is, where it can be, and all of the stories in between. Welcome back to Education is Life. This is Rob Hugie. Good to have you back. Today, we have a special guest with us, Vero. Vero, how are you? Doing as well as can be expected. Beautiful fall day. These are tough times. I remember when we first started doing the podcast that uh, COVID had just come out. And so it felt like uh, anything we talked about COVID was going to be this very time sensitive thing that was going to keep the podcast in kind of this small place. Mm. Um, And I felt like we almost needed to have a little like tag on the end of each episode, like COVID episode. And now seven months later, here we are. Vero, how did you find out about Greenfields? I found out about Greenfields from the Chicago Artists Coalition Opportunities Board. I was really excited. I moved to Chicago this June and was looking for work after my contract at my last position ended. And I read the description of the guide position and I was like, wow, somebody gets how I've been trying to teach. I would have to say if all I did was look at your resume, I wouldn't have been like, yeah, that's the one. Uh, you've got Gee, such thanks, an amazing Ralph. background. No, you got an amazing background <laughs> and doing, having done all types of things, but we aren't looking for traditional educators. We aren't looking mm-hmm. for people who have been kind of trained in, in the old classroom management drill and kill type format. We're looking for people who care deeply about young people and helping them to experience the world in a broad and exciting way and become the best versions of themselves. And so Mm. from that standpoint, I think your resume was spot on. From (laughs) a middle school teacher standpoint, I think there is a little bit of an adjustment and mismatch there that Mm. uh, I think you've found a home. Uh, I hope it feels that way to you. Uh, It feels that way to us. Uh, So now you've been on board for a couple months, just for so everyone knows what's going on. We ended up deciding that Due to limited space, we couldn't have all of the students in the school at the same time uh, because of social distancing and the, making sure everyone is staying safe during these challenging uh, health pandemic times. So we have the youngest kids in school. So that's a kindergarten through fifth grade ages, you know, five through 10, 11 in school four days a week. And then the ones older than that, the middle school and high school age, uh, young people are there for one day a week. Mm-hmm. And Vero is working with the Expos, as we call them, the groups of explorers and voyagers. Mm-hmm. And so what's it been like to like start a new job uh, teaching people and not being able to see them most of the time? In fact, uh, Vero has a co-guide, Pavel, and mm-hmm. Pavel has been the one who's coming in for the one day a week. So mm-hmm. Vero, other than for exhibition and some other minor things, hasn't been able to mm-hmm. meet in person most of the people that she's working with. And so what's, a, what's that been like, Vero? Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's so an opportunity, right? All challenges are 
it's an opportunity to think about how technology can help us stay connected, even when it's really difficult to do so. And I should say, coming from a, a collegiate teaching background, I was at least used to, to some extent, teaching in an online format, though what we do is not traditional teaching. Um, I had been teaching at the University of Iowa in the spring, a class called Art at the End of the World. And that whole class was about all the ways the world could end and has ended before and how creative producers have responded. And so my students in that class were actually really well prepared to go into this apocalyptic time that we're living through. Um, but it didn't make the online aspects of what needed to happen actually easier. And in fact, in one of the hardest things about that teaching circumstance for me was the disparity in socioeconomic backgrounds of many of my students prevented us from synchronously meeting anymore. Um, I made the decision early on in the pandemic once we decided to move classes online at the University of Iowa to only do optional in real time meetings through Zoom because about a third of my students didn't have consistent access to the internet. And I didn't want this to be an added stress. I wanted them to still find solace and as weird as it sounds, joy in creatively responding to challenging moments in human history. And I wanted this class to be a refuge for them and something that they would continue to return to even if they couldn't do so together. So, so transitioning from that teaching environment to Greenfields where it was all online, at least I'd already kind of had the online thing sort of locked down. Um, and I think that many of our Griffins are much more technologically adept in some cases than, than some of my college level students, just because they've grown up with these technologies. They are doing a lot of their socializing already in digital media. Like many of our Griffins are gamers. And so they have distanced relationships with people that they play online video games with, which is great. So they have a, a prototype for how to have really effective, meaningful relationships across distance through computing, through digital technologies. So it's challenging and it's just something that we are so fortunate to live in this time to be able to still attempt to do, right? We have the tools. The challenge is really more in the timing, I feel. And uh, one thing that Pavel and I have had a lot of conversations about regarding this first session of this new year is uh, just how slow it feels to try to build relationships in this format alone. And even though a lot of our Griffins knew each other, moving into a different type of relationship flow and the timing of communications has been a, a big challenge. But again, not insurmountable. I think we're getting there. I'm trying to remain optimistic and hopeful. And I also have very deep friendships that have been deepened by digital technologies. Like a, a person I went to college with, my good friend, Annie, she and I did theater things together. And then after we graduated, we went to different parts of the country and um, we kept in touch through Facebook Messenger. And she became one of my best friends because of these conversations we had over Messenger over years. And now she's decided to leave Facebook because of just mounting political frisson and uh, not wanting to have her brain inundated with that medium anymore. So we're, we're trying to transition that sort of text-based relationship into text messaging in another format. We're trying out different mediums. But I, I have examples in my own life of meaningful relationships formed in this way. So I know it's possible. Yeah, it's just about what, what can we do to help accelerate some of that and mm -hmm. get those moments? Because it, it can be, you know, for some of our students, they're only, uh, they're only children um, whose parents are both working and yeah. 
that's a, it's just tough from a social standpoint. And so Absolutely. we've been doing lots of different things to try to give them opportunities to be social together. And we're continuing to fight that because mm -hmm. we know how important it is that humans have social connections. Yeah. And at a challenging time like this, I think it's even more important to make sure that everyone is getting those. We had a Let's Discuss series, you know, a couple episodes back. Uh, and one of the lines that came out of it, there always seems to be one big takeaway line as a, as a, so let's discuss as we come together as a group and it's open to whoever wants to show up and we discuss a certain topic. And this was about how do we thrive in a time of, you know, epidemic and everything else going on rather than just survive. Cause everyone's just mm -hmm. going to feel like they're just hanging on, hoping that things will get better soon. Right. And the line was, I can be sad and still find joy. Mm -hmm. Right, I can be sad and still find a way to thrive. That I can hold both of those feelings, um, because people are just having a hard time giving themselves permission to be happy, Absolutely. and permission to like, you know, you can accept everything that's going on, and be angry, upset, sad, um, and have those feelings, but still allow yourself to search for and find joy and meaning. Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I think and, a lot of us haven't had to do that. Right. And beauty. I'm thinking a lot about using these technologies as I do use any other medium as an artist, right? Like there's always a learning curve when you are starting with a new format for producing creative work. But what can the tools do? What new beauty is possible that wasn't possible before this tool became the tool, right? That's how I'm trying to think about how we're operating now as a school and, and as a society. Yep, constant iteration, always trying to get better. What was the, what's the Japanese phrase, Kaizen, of a constant improvement? That's a, I'll take your word kind for of it. Key part. <laughs> the key, key part of kind of Greenfield's culture is that uh, how can we be better? How can we do more? How can we challenge ourselves to, to get mm -hmm. to that next level and do something amazing? And this is one of those times where I think our Griffins who have been around for a while, when we did switch online, they just attacked it. It was uh, so natural for them to be able to like, oh, so now I need to rearrange my day. Oh, I'm in charge of my time. Okay, this is going to work. Um, uh, this is how we collaborate. This is how we do things. Like so much of that was just natural to them as they mm -hmm. went into it. Now it's kind of getting to that next phase of, you know, how do we give them, help them find the tools and learn how to use mm -hmm. the tools and how do we find the tools and use the tools to create a vibrant community that doesn't exist in the, or doesn't very often exist in the flesh. Mm -hmm. It's just such a big topic, it's hard not to dive into, but that's not the topic of today. The topic of today is Vero. <laughs> Today's about you, Vero. Um, you know, one of the questions that we ask of all of our guests, because uh, it's important to kind of, it's a, I think it's a really important thing when we give our children over to the system um, and over to educators and over to school. Um, a lot of times we just disconnect and like, well, that's what happens. And they mm -hmm. go to school and I go to work and that's kind of like their work. And we kind of move forward without mm -hmm. ever really evaluating what is happening to them. You know, we put so much effort into raising our children to have the values and beliefs uh, that we have or to be better than we are. Um, to at least explore the, their full selves and to, to become their best selves. And then for seven plus hours a day, 
we give them over to people who we barely know, mm. not knowing what they might even be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions I'm hoping that we can get more people asking, uh, especially during this time when education is in such a flux, mm. is you know what is the purpose of school? Like what mm. what is the why does it happen? And uh, and then we just kind of go from there. So no no easy questions today, Beryl. So what, what is the purpose of school? Really excited to tackle this giant question in three minutes. (laughs) Um, This is a question that I think is one of my callings to try to answer, and it's a lifelong question for me. School, in a historical sense, has provided a social safety net in the United States in a way that few other programs have. So to forefront a little bit of my perspective on this, I think it's helpful to know that I'm trained as a historian, I am a practicing artist and designer, and I also recently got an MBA. And so this helps put into context the way that I view schooling is really about continuous learning. I don't have a separation between being a student and just being alive. I'm constantly in a state of curiosity of trying to improve skills that I have, of gaining new skills, of trying to deepen broader understandings of the world around me and the people in that world. And a lot of my work as an artist focuses on people and planet. I look a lot at climate change. I look at large scale data sets and think of ways to make those tangible, make those emotionally approachable. And so I think continuous learning would be my answer is the purpose of school, whether or not it does it, I'm not sure. As a historian, I know that our K through 12 education system in the United States has really served in lieu of having stronger social services. It is now the place where the majority of America's children are receiving nutrition, are receiving childcare, are receiving medical attention. We know that almost 40% of all children in this country live in poverty or teeter on the edge of poverty. And what school has done has tried to level a playing field at a socioeconomic level whether or not it's delivering on that beautiful idea is another question, right? And that's part of the reason we're here. So the purpose of education, one was to try to make sure that all children born in this country have a similar starting point in life and more loftily to instill a sense of wonder and a sense of continuous growth that would make all children who experience the system productive citizens And production and ideas of production, of course, have shifted over time and can be entrenched in this sort of capitalist labor market ideal of school equals a good worker in a particular profession. Again, whether or not that's happening now, a question. So there's definitely a need that having a physical place Mm -hmm. with trained adults at um, uh, cause also like one of the big pieces of school and I mean, you alluded to it, but it was yeah. like, uh, get out of sweatshops, get out of yeah. like that, you know, people were actively, uh, taking advantage of young mm-hmm. people, uh, mm-hmm. and by requiring them to be at school, I think originally through eighth grade Absolutely. was, um, was something to protect the, protect our future, uh citizens i guess they're current citizens too bad phrase but um, yeah and so there's like this low baseline piece Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that's really 
struggling with right now of not being able to send students mm -hmm. to a school is mm -hmm. how are we making sure that the ones who can't afford to get food mm -hmm. get food how are we making sure that the ones who may be living in, in a dangerous situation are getting attention mm -hmm. right how do we continue to do those social service aspects that mm -hmm. school has become um and i think it speaks to like what my one of my biggest concerns about school is that we've built a floor Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not even sure we've like, now my analogy is going to go crazy, but I feel like <laughs> we've also built a, we've built a pretty hard ceiling mm -hmm. of this, you know, you get your A and you're done. You, um, you do, you get your gold stars and that's what the purpose has become. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't care about gold stars, oh, well, you know, yeah. you don't get one. I, I think you're describing a box. You're describing a box, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and, right, and there's some good in that box. There's food in the box. There's medicine in the box. Mm -hmm. um, there's mandated reporters in the box. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, I feel like we, there's just such a, I, I'm such a deep believer in human potential mm -hmm. um, and like what humans are actually capable of. And I feel like right now, where school has become, not just in this country, but in so many others, mm -hmm. is not a place that helps anybody figure out how to maximize their potential. No. Uh, it, uh, it, it builds fixed mindset. Uh, it doesn't, it really caters to only people with academic skills. Mm -hmm. um, your other skills don't have a place to flourish. Your other personality types don't have a place to flourish. Mm -hmm. And how can we uh, rebuild or reimagine something that allows more of that? And I'd say, you know, we put a lot of work into Greenfields to try to solve for some of that. Mm -hmm. And then to see it go online and see some kids who were like just totally thriving and really becoming their like best selves and doing amazing things kind of like womp, 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 mm -hmm. like kind of like fall off. Mm -hmm. And some who were struggling in an in-person environment to really mm -hmm. start to thrive in that uh, virtual environment has really also made me like, okay, we're not doing enough in our core design mm. to make sure that we're helping people figure out what makes them strong. Mm. And so, you know, how do we, how do we really create an environment that lets all personality types thrive? Because once you get out of school, we need all those skills. We need all those personality types. We need all those things that weren't nourished um, and fed and or we're told weren't important. Right. Uh, those are the skills that really need to get out there. But I've, I found my soapbox and I, that was not my intent. Um, I want to come back to um, something you said about schools as they currently exist in a traditional public format, serving only those who are academically talented. I don't even know that all public schools are capable of that. I'm thinking about my home district. I grew up in a really low income rural community here in Northern Illinois, and there were no AP classes. There are no AP classes still. I've tried to maintain a relationship with my home district, thinking about the ways that I have used the really wonderful parts of that education because of some aspects of slipping through the cracks. Um, in particular, we had a very strong music program, and that's really what kept me invested and involved academically. Uh, but I did not have the same opportunities as my suburban peers. I didn't have the ability to take college credit level courses growing up. Um, that has changed a little bit. 
I think a lot about access to uh, higher education since that's the world I was mostly steeped in prior to Greenfields. And I still think is relevant to our Griffins as many of them do have aspirations of continuing a formalized education after they leave us. But schools as they exist now are really only serving um, a kind of common denominator that does not leave a lot of room or opportunity for people that do not fall into the very center peak of the bell curve, right? Any outliers are, are not well served by public schools. And it's arguable that even those in the center are well served as what does that mean, right? Like what does it mean to be a typical person or a typical learner? Is there such a thing? The longer that I'm in education, I don't think there is such a thing. It gets right to the core of like, what is the purpose, right? So mm -hmm. what, what's it, because we hear about all the challenges of being a teacher in a traditional system, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, you know, the kids who are zooming ahead, how do I take care of them? The mm -hmm. ones who are falling behind, how do I take care of them? Mm -hmm. But like, who are the ones in the middle and what are you doing for them, right? It's kind of like, what what's the purpose of this time? When you think that most homeschooling families spend about two hours a day on mm -hmm. school, which is roughly what we spend on core, right? Mm -hmm. At Greenfields. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do with the rest of that time? And I feel like there's a structure challenge. When I first started Greenfields, I was looking into like, okay, how can we most efficiently learn? And like, and there was very little research done on K-12 education in terms of mm -hmm. efficacy. And I became convinced that the reason there is, is no one knows what to do with a 12 year old high school graduate. Yeah. Right. I think I could get almost anyone to have a full bachelor's degree by the time they're 18. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't get the point. Like, mm -hmm. great. Now you have a bachelor's degree. You know even less about yourself because mm -hmm. you haven't had any time to experience life and to figure out who you are. You've just been like mm -hmm. chasing this degree the whole mm -hmm. time. There wouldn't be much time for electives. There wouldn't be much time for anything mm -hmm. else because you have to like get it in there. And then you got the disaggregation of the degree that's happening mm -hmm. at the higher ed level, like uh, where uh, credentialing and badges are becoming a bigger mm -hmm. thing and full degrees are becoming less of a requirement in many jobs. Coding is a big example. Yeah. Uh, so where do you think higher ed's going? I mean, you Oh my gosh, what a question. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason that I was interested in this transition to working with a place like Greenfields out of coming from a large R1 public university was that I was seeing a lot of fissures in, in higher ed as well. And a lot of my research in writing this past year has been about access to higher education from a spatialized perspective. So I'm an architectural historian. I think a lot about how we create spaces of education, both in a classroom context, but also in a community orientation or a habitation pattern context, right? And so I was thinking through a lot of the place where I grew up as a case study. Um, one of the key indicators of success and retention in college is actually proximity. So we are still existing in this educational environment where even beyond K through 12, if you don't live close to a college or a four-year credentialed institution, it's exponentially more difficult for you to attain a bachelor's degree. And that just That's seems wild. That's crazy, right? And there's not a lot of good hard data on this, but um, from some of the research that I've known and that I'm publishing currently, um, rural students are some of the most underserved in our country. And of course, they're a smaller percentage of the population. A lot of the research money for these types of sociological and access studies have gone towards urban contexts as they probably should from a pure 
population standpoint, but there's still access issues in urban environments too. And some of that is proximity, like proximity is scalable to access to transit, right? Um, so even if you live 10 miles from a school versus 100 miles from a school, and by school here, I mean collegiate level, um, that can still be a similar barrier. So in my work, I've started talking about time deserts rather than education deserts. So if it's gonna take you Elab the same- Elaborate, please. Yeah, absolutely. So this, this actually plays into K through 12 concerns as well, but um, it is so much harder for people who were born into impoverished circumstances or who live at that cusp of poverty and must work 60 hour weeks in a minimum wage job to do things like get groceries, to do things like have access to childcare, let alone access to taking a night class at a community college, right? And time deserts seem to be an all-encompassing way to speak about this across a rural-urban divide. Because if it still takes you an hour and a half by uh, city transit to get to the community college where you can easily enroll to take night classes, that's an hour and a half that is just the same as the hour and a half somebody in a rural place would have to spend to drive back and forth to the closest county outpost of a public university system. So that time differential might be a better way to think about access. Um, this is all kind of rambly, but my point is that I think these systems are breaking down and that the degree, one of the key findings of the research that I've aggregated and looked at is that getting a bachelor's degree if you're from a low income rural place actually has a pretty low return on investment currently. Um, you still make more is that money. Because you go, is that because you go back to the your rural environment and it's just not valued there in the same way? It's the, the data is difficult there, to or? disaggregate. Yeah, it's partially that. It's partially the debt load that many low income people must take on to achieve higher education and that degree designation now. Um, but it's also the types of fields that seem open to them because like tech is not a thing that is super accessible as an industry if you do want to return to your community of origin in a small rural context, right? That should change. I mean, I think COVID might be one of the catalysts changing that because we're all online now. Um, but my parents aren't online, you know, they work in retail and they still live in the house I grew up in and they are driving over an hour each way into the Chicago suburbs to work in person every day. And so there's still a class divide here that college is not alleviating. And my, my parents did not go to college. I'm a first-generation college graduate. Um, so what, what a lot of these findings have shown is that people from communities like mine who are able to get a college degree only make 70% more than their peers who just stopped at high school or even dropped out of high school if you're a white man which is insane. I mean, it's still an increase, like 70% more is more, <laughs> but that's compared to people who are from higher income, more urban contexts or suburban contexts who go to college. It's something like they, they receive um, almost 240% more in lifetime earnings than their peers who don't go to college, but they're already at this higher income bracket. So that real life feeling of that differential is much, much, uh, smaller than it is for somebody from a community like mine. Um, so I think college has to fundamentally change. And there's so much that's been happening in terms of disinvestment at the federal level from public universities in particular. The reason the debt load is so high is because of a shift in national funding priorities. 
I would strongly argue. Um, so for example, I grew up in Illinois. I graduated high school in 2008 during the Great Recession. Really good time to enter the world as a young person. And um, I was offered a half scholarship to Northern Illinois University. But even with a half tuition scholarship, I still would have paid more than a smaller scholarship I got from a private institution. Because at the time, in-state tuition was around $28,000 a year which is insane. And that was, you know, more than a decade ago at this point. So that's only increased. And that's why so many people that grew up in Illinois are now going to the University of Iowa because out of state tuition in Iowa is cheaper than in-state tuition at public universities in Illinois. And so until there's some kind of consensus about not only what K through 12 education is for, but the purpose of higher education too, is it to get a fancy piece of paper? Is it to gain skills that put you into a particular job that might not exist in five years? <laughs> is it worth it? I think um, COVID is a, a major moment of reckoning. And I don't know who's gonna come out of this ahead or if all institutions will survive, probably not. Um, but yeah, that, that was part of what led me to, to being at Greenfields was uh, not really a loss of faith in the purpose of higher education because college was a really important life experience for me. But the way that I did college is not how most people do college and that I just couldn't choose a major. So I did three majors simultaneously and I was really active in environmental advocacy and social justice initiatives. And I was in a really high level performing classical music ensemble. And that was a huge part of my experience. And so I didn't limit my college experience to a particular major. What made it very powerful for me was the ability to explore and manage my own time in a way that I hadn't been able to experience in the K through 12 system. And I don't think that's everyone's typical college experience. And so I'm grateful for that, but I don't know how much more possible that will be as, as colleges are forced to cut humanities programs, for example, or fine arts programs. I think that the rigor of humanities study and fine arts programs is often overlooked. And that type of rigor is the skill set that you bring, not the ability to underwater basket weave, right? It's this idea of excellence. That's what my college education did for me in a way that my K through 12 education did not do except for music. And music was really what kept me going. Um, so shout out to Mr. Hawkinson, Mr. Wickwire, and Ms. Hooper, my music instructors all through K through 12, because they saw that I needed something that I could pour my whole self into and they made space for me to do that in a way that most public schools do not. And I think that, that that is the hopeful future, right? Is we create environments where young people who are developing passions have access to others who have expertise, who share passions and who are also skilled at coaching, skilled at guiding, right? Not telling these students exactly what to do to explore these passions, but helping them discover a path that is sustainable for them, that encourages and keeps inflaming the things that they're most excited about. Yeah, so they, uh, where they learn how to learn, where they learn how to like, yes. oh, I'm interested in this, but there isn't a class to take. There's not, you know, mm -hmm. nothing immediately available, but I know I can figure out how to learn this because I've done it in these five other projects. I've, it's the constant challenge that's been put in front of me is, mm -hmm. okay, here's what you got to do, figure out how to do it. And I think once you internalize that and you're like, hey, I'm really, and to counterpoint you, I'm really interested in underwater basket weaving. I think yeah. I can like nail it, right? 
um, and there aren't any classes on it. Uh, so I have to go and create my own, right? And mm -hmm. so, but if that's what you're really into, having the confidence and the skills to be able to go after that, even when there isn't a path where you can build your own path. Mm -hmm. I think that's like the biggest thing to put forth. When you look at, I know people are quoting now, 80% of the needs of the economy for mm -hmm. when the current crop of students graduate don't exist today. Yep. They're going to be all like, so what are we preparing them for, right? We're using systems that are 100 years old, trying mm -hmm. to prepare them for something that's going to be completely different than what it is now in 10 years. Like, what are the real skills that mm -hmm. are needed? And I think when you, when you go back to higher ed, which is also where I was before getting into mm -hmm. Greenfields, um, the national funding model, I think, plays grotesquely into what mm -hmm. happened uh, with schools over the last 20 years or 30 years. I guess I'm getting old now. Um, 30 years and just a, it was this kind of like school's getting expensive. We should make more loans and stuff available. Hey, mm -hmm. there's more loans available. Let's make school more expensive. And mm -hmm. it just became this constant thing. Like the facilities that colleges have today compared to what I had, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not even comparable. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, the professors aren't making a whole lot more. That's not oh, I, I can tell you from experience, to. they are not making a lot more. Um, and in fact, many professors or people that teach at the collegiate level are losing job security. You know, they there are so few tenure track lines and the whole point of having public research institutions is so that you can have independent scholars doing interesting research that will benefit all of society without interference from a government or from some other political entity, right? That's why tenure is supposed to exist is academic integrity and freedom. Uh, but now that system has been disrupted and most young people who, uh, or not just young people, but people that are recently graduated have the credentials to teach at the collegiate level uh, will not be able to find a 10-year track position because everything's like one-year contracts and you have to move halfway across the country to get the next one-year contract. And it's totally unsustainable unless you are independently wealthy and are just doing it for funsies, you know? <laughs> so that whole model is just not going to survive our current moment. And the other part of that is many higher ed institutions have been really reticent to utilize digital technologies as delivery mechanisms um, for some legitimate but mostly illegitimate fears of making teaching as a collegiate pastime obsolete, right? Like if you can just record your lectures and then play them to students, why would you ever show up to work again? Well, that's a pretty valuable question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, well, I, it, you know, back in the day when uh, flipped classrooms became like the big deal, mm -hmm. that was the huge concern. And I think the answer is like, if you are someone, an educator who sees your role as stand and deliver, um, video makes your career very short. Exactly, exactly. And that's, to me, that's not really what education is. Education is a co-creation of an exploratory process, right? And that's how I've approached my work as a higher ed educator, that's how I'm approaching work as a guide, is thinking through things that I'm excited and curious to learn about. And I do have some areas of expertise that inform the methods with which I continue to explore those curiosities, but really inviting others into that process and doing this in community is what's so important to me. And that's not what really the collegiate model is set up for at this current moment in time, but it might be forced to become so. <laughs> I think that's well, a positive. I 
Yeah, I have a senior in high school right now who's starting to look at colleges and figure that out and he's running the numbers and some of the stuff that you talked about, like he, it's cheaper for him to go to University of North Carolina, mm-hmm. at Chapel Hill, than to go to University of Illinois as a state resident. Yep. Uh, that's, that's, that's crazy, but that's a, when you have government pay or third party pay, mm-hmm. uh, you're always at the risk of the funding getting cut and uh, that going on and when it gets super expensive like i don't you know are you going to go pay 160 dollars to get an ag degree to go back to rural iowa yeah um you can't afford it like right you know what are you what are you going to do and i i really think higher ed is on the verge of a bigger change than k-12 hmm. um and has been for a while I think K-12 is very slow to morph and change. Mm-hmm. Higher ed's been a little bit faster, but I think as the market becomes like, I'm not going to pay $40,000 to do online courses because I can't go live in a dorm because of COVID, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Like, what do I do? And I think, you know, shout out to Southern New Hampshire University, uh, who I actually used to compete against. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do they do a great job of delivering really solid, really affordable online education. Yeah. And I think outfits like that, where you start to blend it, where it's like, hey, I'm going to take these three through Southern New Hampshire. Um, I'm going to do this internship with this one company that I'm really interested in working with. And you start to build that new path to get to the place that you want to become and the things you want to do, I think is going to become a much more common uh, path towards I don't know, career, career stopped so long ago. I don't even know what to call it. Anymore, it's not right? a career. It's, it's a calling or well, what I, okay so here's my hopeful vision I'm maybe this is a good place for us to sort of wrap up and think about um the future of higher education so I'm interested in the future not just higher education but the future of education point blank um my hopeful vision for a future of education is collaborative community-based multi-age learning experiences that continue to grow with the people that are engaged in that And so some examples of that would be one of the things that I started doing with my art at the end of the world class was I created a partnership with a senior living center and we flipped half the class into public lectures that anyone could attend that were all led by guests who had various areas of expertise. So we had everybody from an epidemiologist to a fine art photographer, to a constitutional scholar, to a person that worked with local food systems. All of these different folks with very different backgrounds came into this space that my college age students were sharing with seniors in our community who had lived through many of the types of world endings we were talking about to listen to somebody talk about how the world might end according to their expertise. And that felt like a really wonderful synergistic way of thinking through some of the biggest problems we face. Maybe one of the key components, one of the key reasons we have education systems in the first place is to solve problems that we as humans continue to face over time, to equip ourselves with ways of working through challenges, right? And that model of very conversation-based, co-created space-making felt like the most exciting thing I've ever done as a person working in education. And that's what I'd like to work to again is is having people of all ages being honored for what they bring. So back to some of your questions earlier, Rob, about how do we create education experiences for people that are not exceptional, classically, academically 
talented students, uh, how do we create exceptional education experiences that honor all of these different ways of being in the world? Well, I think this conversational multi-generational approach around given topics at a time might be one way. And then as an architectural historian, I'm really excited about how we have to rethink classrooms right now because of COVID. I don't think classrooms with assigned desks have actually worked all that well for most people. Like in your own job after school, do you sit at your desk for nine hours a day? Maybe some people do, but nobody enjoys that. Like cubicles are life crushing and so are these static desk arrangements. So I'm really curious to see how the spatialized aspect of school changes in response to trying to create healthier environments. One thing we're seeing globally is a return to outdoor classrooms. And how wonderful is that? Learning underneath trees or actually using the tree as the starting point for learning. How can we better utilize our immediate environments as teaching tools is something that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I'm interested in the way you talked about education as a way to solve problems that we're stuck in. And the fact that that's kind of where K-12 started, right? Mm -hmm. Was we're stuck in this uh, place of exploitation of young mm -hmm. people. Um, and we need workers and factories and mm -hmm. all these other pieces. We got all these farm uh, labor that's coming to the city and how do we educate and sort them uh, to that. Uh, the, you know, that system worked for what it was designed for. It's just that need is no longer around. And so now that, you know, solving for this new need, as you explained, I think uh, that if we think of school, even like the way conventional school was formulated was to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Is it, what problem is it solving for now? When, mm -hmm. you, when you look at what the, look around this country, where we are at this point in time, like you have to think K-12 failed us somewhere. Like mm -hmm. everybody's been through it, right? Not everybody, but um we're at the highest uh, graduation rates that we've had. Uh, but what has it done to us as a society? What has it mm -hmm. done to solve any problems? What has it done to raise people up, uh, to empower people, like all those types of things? I think that's the next generation of challenges that we need to start hitting now. And we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could all see you right now, Vera. Just give a big thumbs up. Uh, like, We're on it, Captain. We're um, doing it. But uh, no, Vero, it's been a great time. Thanks for coming on. I love the fact that you're at Greenfields now and mm -hmm. love the energy that you bring and the viewpoints and look forward to uh, doing it. Doing it. Thank you so much, Rob. <laughs> Thanks for this podcast. Thanks for this wonderful conversation. And thanks to you all out there. I uh, look forward to hearing, uh, hearing from you on our new Facebook discussion page and also um, listen to you next time. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and tune in next time for a fresh new episode of Education is Life.